0: I would invite you, if you would, to please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139, which will be our text for this Sunday in the Psalms, Psalm 139, and out of respect for the holiness of God and the holiness of his infallible word, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Psalm 139, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You may be seated. We'll go before the Lord in prayer before we exposit this wonderful psalm together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... We love you and we thank you for this evening where we can gather freely, Lord, to worship you uh, because you are faithful to us, Lord. You have saved us from your wrath and condemnation and have set us upon firm ground through your son, Christ, who has sent for us, Lord. We uh, lift up this evening to you, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive your word, Lord, and that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work before us this evening. Lord, I pray for um, our elder Mark as he's um, dealing with uh, just uh a, a illness of some sort with his throat. Lord, I pray that you would um, heal him there, Lord, uh, and uh, restore him to us, Lord. I, I pray for um, this evening, Lord, this uh Lord, be with us this evening, Lord. In your son's name we pray, amen. Psalm 139, uh, as we just read, is a very popular, very familiar psalm. However, it is a psalm that I'm afraid has been sadly neglected um, in its entirety, and I fear that the meaning of the psalm has been lost by only focusing in on key verses Uh, So with our time together, I hope that we will come away from this study with a proper theology that is a higher and correct view of God and that our response would be proper as well. Doxology, praise, worship, and adoration. I hope that there would be conviction of sin where refining is needed and that encouragement would abound for the believer here tonight. Beloved, the creator of the universe is at work in our midst and his Holy Spirit is with us because of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is his infallible word of truth. As we begin our exposition here together, we need to understand from the onset that this psalm brings the reader to a precipice that depending on your positional relation to Christ will result in one of two realities, either complete and utter terror or complete and utter peace. If you're taking notes, we have a pamphlet that was passed out uh, on your way in. Um, If you don't have one, feel free to raise your hand and uh, one of our servants will get one to you. Uh, And hopefully this outline will help diagram our exposition and keep us on track. And I invite you to take notes if you would like. Uh, You'll see that there's five sections and uh, I hope that we can cover them all tonight. And our first section will cover verses one through six and it's been labeled the Omniscience of God or his intimate knowledge of us. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, and you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. Last month, Pastor Matthew led us through a beautiful exposition of Psalm 145, where we learned of the greatness of God we learned how inscrutable are his ways or how unsearchable the depths of God are. And here in Psalm 139, we see quite the opposite in that we sinners are very searchable indeed. Tonight, we'll be focusing on the attributes of God, his mighty works, his thoughts, and his grace provided to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in verse one that Yahweh has searched and known David. The word in Hebrew for searched denotes a sense of exploration or examination. It's the same word used when Joshua sent men to scout out the promised land. David knows that God searches and knows the heart. And I can only imagine that he would have the words of Samuel on his mind as he penned this psalm. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, we see that Samuel is, is looking for the Lord's anointed uh, and he's called to go to the, the house of Jesse and to examine each son. And the Lord would tell him which son was to be anointed king. He looks upon Eliab and thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed before him. And God responds, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. In Hebrews 4:12 and 13 we read, "For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." This is extraordinarily convicting language we go back to our text we read that god knows our hearts and our thoughts our actions our words and no god is not some allegorical santa claus who knows when you are sleeping and knows when you are awake um, knows if you've been bad or good he does know these things but he's no santa claus amen practical application for us tonight don't attempt to hide your sin from god he already knows it probably before you do (laughs) Make a habit of confessing sin regularly, and he is faithful and just to forgive. Amen. So does God need to search us to know us? No. God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He does not need to learn. Nothing catches God off guard. He does not discover things about you that he did not already know. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He sees us on a molecular level. He sees past, present, and future simultaneously, because he created time itself, and he is sovereign over all of his creation. Continuing on in verse five, David says that the Lord hems him in, both behind and before, and that he lays his hand upon him. The idea here is that of a conquered army. David was a great military mind with an impressive resume, and here he's saying he's been outmaneuvered by God. He's surrounded with no possible move, checkmate, game over. Rather than grind his teeth and shake his fist at God, he equates this with the idea of God's loving hedge of protection and providence, provision for his life. Beloved, can you look back in your life and see the sovereign hand of our Lord working and willing to bring you to faith? He not only created you, he designed your life. And in the fullness of time, as he was calling you, you were able to believe upon him for your salvation Not only this, but do you take comfort in the fact that he will keep you until he returns or calls you home? Oh, that the creator of the universe is acquainted with you. Of the billions of people who have ever lived on this earth, that he would concern himself with you, with me. What's David's response? Look with with me at verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Notice that David says it's wonderful. Not dreadful, not full of terror, fear. It's, it's wonderful. It's marvelous. This intimate monergistic relationship between the altogether high and holy God with his low creature is too wonderful for David to comprehend or spend much thought trying to examine that because there is no end to God's love for him. That should be our response for those in Jesus tonight. This leads us to our second section, if you're paying attention and taking notes. um, God's omnipresence, or his infinite closeness to us in verses seven through 12. We read, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David asked two rhetorical questions in verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit and where shall I flee from your presence? Answer, nowhere. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere and ever present. David continues with the clever use of imagery to give us a compass, if you will, for where the spirit of God presides Dr. Steve Lawson succinctly explains it like this. Whether we ascend above the earth to heaven or make our bed in death, sheol, the Hebraic term for death, whether we take the wings of the dawn before the sun rises in the east or dwell in the remotest part of the Mediterranean Sea to the west, behold, God is there. And no matter where we go, north, south, east, or west, he is there and he is with us. Whether through prosperity or poverty, God knows the way forward and will lead us by his right hand. Amen. Not only is God everywhere, but he is intimately close to his creation. In Jeremiah 23, 23, and 24, we read, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? In verses 11 and 12, David continues, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. He answers this diatribe with an accurate view and description of God. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In the first section, we saw that God sees through us. God has x-ray vision, and here we see that God has night vision. Our God is the God of light. There can be no darkness in him. There can be no hiding from him. And more than this, he is with us always and has promised to never leave or forsake us. What a comfort for those in Christ. Section three the omnipotence of God or his illustrious power in creation we see in verses 13 through 18 For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. I believe there's a lot of temptation to spend most of our time here tonight. After all, this is the area that most people know and can quote from this psalm. And I can only imagine how many Christian social media or dating profiles include the hashtag wonderfully made. Let's go back to verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is absolutely amazing, beloved. The God who we have learned is infinitely omniscient and infinitely omnipresent. We read here is omnipotent. He's a big God, yet He is delicately, intricately, carefully, and methodically working to form us in our mother's womb. All of our inward parts, our personalities, our dispositions, everything about us was made by God. David's response I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. One of the reasons I wanted to take us through this psalm this evening is because it's important that we have a correct understanding of God and a correct understanding of Scripture. We need to know what it means by what it says. I can't begin to tell you how many sermons I've heard that use this particular verse in Psalm 139 as a proof text for some other issue or point that the speaker is trying to make. For example, is abortion murder? Yes, Is it because we, the human race, are fearfully and wonderfully made? Yes, in part. But that's not the point that David's making here. Example number two. Do we need to rely on God through prayer for our health when we are in the midst of sickness? Yes. Are our immune systems created by God to work to rid us of disease? Yes. Is it proof that we are fearfully and wonderfully made? Yes, in part. But that's not the point that David makes here in the text. We are made, created, and formed by God, true. Yet, we are born in a state of sin. We are born with imperfections and flaws, and most importantly, the need of a savior. Let's not get the cart before the horse here, beloved. David sings praises to God for everything we've looked at up until this point, for who God is and what God has done. If we are fearfully and wonderfully made, it is solely because we are made by the God who is to be feared, to be revered and who is wonderful and marvelous in and of himself. While the psalm is very personal, it's written in the first person. This psalm has nothing to do with David the man and everything to do with David's God. His attributes, his mighty works, his thoughts. David continues, "Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well." David's response should be our response. Worship, praise, adoration for the King of Kings. Lord of Lords. Amen. Charles Spurgeon wrote, long before time began, or space was created, God had written upon his heart the names of all his elect people. Now, if we look at verse 16b, we read, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. We see that God has ordained every aspect of our lives. Not just how many days we have to live, but the content and the quality of each of those days. Beloved, our days are numbered. We are finite, created beings with an expiration date. Not one person who has ever lived or will live can add a single minute to their life. Everyone dies precisely on time. The question before us is, are we comforted by this truth as David is? He continues, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am with you. Is the picture getting clearer for us tonight? Are we seeing more of the love of God towards his saints by way of studying his attributes, his works, and his mind? How pitiful would it be for us to compare ourselves to God? He is so intimately involved with our every doing, and thankfully, God is eternal, and it will take us all of eternity to continue learning more about him, for he is without end. Now, I mentioned earlier that there are two realities that this psalm will bring us to depending on your position before Christ absolute terror or absolute peace. If you are a believer in Christ and you trust in him alone for your salvation, he is Lord over your life and you have repented before him, then this psalm will offer immense encouragement to you because although God does see you to your core, every fiber of your being which is stained by sin, he sees his son in your place. Your filthy garments are as white as snow because you have been washed in the blood of the lamb. Absolute peace with God and the promise of eternal rest in him. You see, this psalm is at its core, a hymn of thanksgiving. And you can only have a heart full of thankfulness if you have this peace that is provided through Christ as your Lord and Savior. If he is not your Lord and Savior, then this psalm presents an absolutely terrifying reality for you. I think we're all accounted for, but nevertheless, the gospel must be preached. If you're not a believer, the knowledge that the creator of the universe not only made you, but knows your every thought, your actions, that there's nowhere you can run and hide from his presence should bring you absolute dread. You are at enmity with God, warring against the Almighty, and his eternal wrath is laser-focused upon you. God is holy and demands perfect holiness from his creatures. We cannot hope to keep the law of God on our own and are in desperate need for a savior. The Bible tells us that in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. All sin will be paid for, either by yourself or on Christ. Thankfully, God did send his son Jesus to uphold the perfect requirement of God and to take on the punishment of every sin, even though he had not sinned himself. In so doing, he has provided the only way to be reconciled to God. If you're in this camp and you're realizing that you need to get right with God, please, I ask you, repent this day. Accept the Lord Jesus as the only way of salvation and let today be the day of salvation for you. As we see in the next portion of the psalm, it's imperative that you be As we will see in the next portion of the psalm, it's imperative that you need to be reconciled to God because his judgment is coming imminently. No one except the Father knows the day or hour when Christ will come. At his first advent, he came to make the only way of salvation. And at his second coming, he's coming to judge the quick and the dead. We come to verses 19 through 22. The judgment of God and his imminent return. Verses 19 through 22 comprise what is called an imprecatory prayer. And while imprecatory prayers are not the most popular Bible verses for your holiday cards, uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving cards, they are still very much scripture and are equally breathed out by God as any other portion of scripture. So may our 21st century American hearts conform to the text and not the other way around. Amen. Verses 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. To be abundantly clear, this prayer is not personal, it's not a vendetta. And nor does it come from a place of spite. This prayer is a petition that God would execute his divine judgment as he has promised to. God's grace is not cheap, you see. It cost him dearly, it cost him his only begotten son. You see, without God's divine judgment of sin, there would be no need for a Savior. So we pray that God would do just as he said he will. We pray that God will fulfill his promises. Our prayers do not dictate the will of God. Our prayers are to be subject to the will of God. As his redeemed people, we are daily being conformed to the image of God. And as we walk by faith, we start to imitate our Creator. By the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, we start to love the things that God loves. We ought to hate the things that God hates. The great 16th century reformer William Perkins wrote this about this imprecatory prayer of David. We must hate the company and society of manifest and obstinate sinners who will not be reclaimed. We must have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We strive to hate sin perfectly, that is, all sin, as David, and not as some who can hate some sin but cleave to some other, as many can hate pride but love covetousness or some other darling sin. We must attain to the hatred of all sin. Which leads us to our closing stanza of the psalm in verses 23 and 24. Sanctification and progress is a measurable grace in refining us for glory. David closes, Search me, O God, and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As David closes, he beautifully echoes the opening lines where he stated that the Lord has searched and known him. Here he petitions God to search and to know his heart, to try him and know his thoughts. Did God miss something the first time? No, the idea here is that David is asking to see himself as God sees him. To make sure that there is no sin that goes unrepented of in his life. To see if there be any grievous, evil, or hurtful way within him. This is sanctification being worked out and it should be a model to us as we strive to put to death our former selves. May we make no provision of the flesh as John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. What courage from David! Spurgeon again writes, yet we may each one desire such searching, for it would be a terrible calamity to us for sin to remain in our hearts unknown and undiscovered. David was a man of courage when he slew a lion in the way, when he successfully encountered a bear. When he went out to meet the giant Goliath, he gave undoubted proofs of courage, but never did he display such courage as when he asked God to look into his heart. Lastly, David ends by asking God to lead him in the way everlasting. In verse 24, and we'll leave here tonight with a final quote from Spurgeon on what this everlasting way is. It is the way in which immortal spirits will gladly run forever and ever. There will be no end to it. It is a world without end. It lasts forever, and they who are in it last forever. Conduct me in it, O Lord, and conduct me throughout the whole length of it by thy providence, by thy word, by thy grace, and by thy spirit. Lead me evermore. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you um, just for the gathering of saints here. I pray that your word would edify us, Lord, and build us up and encourage us in the faith that you have given us through your son Jesus, the Christ, the propitiation for our sins. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for who you are, your intrinsic glory. Lord, I pray that we would ascribe glory to your name. through our thoughts and our actions would be a form of worship, praise and adoration to you. In your son's precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.